music, 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 technology, music, technology, music, technology, technology, tech, 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 music, technology, teacher, 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 technology, teacher, tech, teacher, teacher, network, net, net, teacher, network, net, net, teacher, network, network. Music technology teachers network music technology teachers network music 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 Hello everyone and welcome to the Mutech Teacher Talk podcast. This podcast is a part of mutechteachernet.com, a website dedicated to advocating, supporting and inspiring creativity in teachers and students through music technology. I'm your host and founder of New Tech TeacherNet, Heath Jones. I teach music technology courses in grades 6 through 8 near Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast seeks to bring in engaging and highly knowledgeable professionals, performers, and innovators from the worlds of education, business, and industry to share their expertise, ideas, and tips with teachers, students, and performers in the music technology field. Be sure to check out our other resources. In addition to the website, we have a blog, MutechTeacherNetBlog.com, and we have many instructional videos that are posted on our YouTube channel that you can find by searching Mutech TeacherNet on YouTube. You can also follow us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. In this episode, I welcome David Jakobovich to the podcast. David is the founder of the Humane Podcast that explores the relationships and influences of artificial intelligence and machine learning on business, industry, consumers, and society. He is the principal data scientist at Galvanize and is responsible for delivering global instruction, curriculum development, and customer support to their innovative and unique learning platform. I hope that you enjoy our conversation as we discuss a range of topics, including gender disparity for females in the tech industry, what artificial intelligence really is, to the relationship between human creativity and AI, among other things. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for being here. Sure. Thanks so much for having me on the show today. Why don't we start off and just tell me a little bit about how you became interested in you know the technology and the data science and what was that thing that kind of led you into this career? So uh, I got involved in technology by starting actually mathematics back in middle school and high school and started doing math competitions, started tutoring in math and, and helping students out. And it realized for me that I had both a passion for technology and an interest in education. Fast forward to my first job in 2010, I was involved with AFLAC doing actuarial science in Columbus, Georgia, and everyone started talking about big data. They started talking about the cloud, and I really wanted to get involved, started learning new tech skills. And before you know it, I was teaching this to different divisions in the company and every company I've been involved with since then. It's a very fast-changing field, and Happy to be a part of the, the new wave of AI. So while it might not be obvious at first glance the connection your field of expertise may have with the Mutech Teacher Talk community, I would like for you to tell me about the company that you work with now, Galvanize. The website describes the community this way. Traditionally, industry and education have existed in separate worlds. 
at Galvanize, we're bridging this long-standing gap. And I really relate to that statement and even what I found here in our state of Georgia, where we're trying to make connections between what we're doing at the public school level, with our university community, and with the huge career prospects and in industries that we have here in Georgia. So can you tell me a little about the vision of Galvanize and what you do there to bridge this gap between industry and education? Yeah, absolutely. So Galvanize was founded back in 2012, and I've been with the organization since 2018. Uh, we're the technology learning community. So we have eight campuses around the United States, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Phoenix, uh, the Denver Boulder region, Austin, Texas, uh, Seattle, and New York City. And what we do is we both help incubate startups in a co-working community space, as well as foster an entire technology learning community, both with consumers like yourself and myself who might want to learn new tech skills, as well as enterprises and corporations who are looking to reskill and upskill their employees to be relevant for the future of work uh, and the new age of AI. You know, as an organization, we've actually been involved with media as well for many years. We have a whole media division. We have a tech talk series on YouTube where we've interviewed um, different participants from Shark Tank and other venture startups to show how they've gotten their start off the road. And we love to feature startups who are based in our space. Our film director, Jared, travels all around the U.S. and covers our stories and shows how transformations are possible. Two of the groups that we're really proud of working with are one, veterans uh, who come back to the U.S. after their service. And we work with veterans in tech in Phoenix. Uh, one of the main organizations we work with is USAA. And we've been helping them get a lot of veterans, you know, back into the workforce. So we found that really powerful to see that you can learn technology at any age. The second group we're really proud to support is women in tech. So, you know, we do have uh, women leaders in our organization and at Galvanize, we have scholarships that support technology, especially if you're from an underrepresented or minority group. We're all about bridging that gap and it starts, you know, one person at a time. Yeah, you know, I've I've seen in a couple of different sources, you know, in the last year, you know, a lot of discussion about the gender disparity in technology industry between men and women. And it seems like we're beginning to get more and more traction as far as attracting more women into tech careers, but also in getting, you know, students at a young age interested in technologies. How have you noticed that trend developing and, and what are some things that you think we can do to continue encouraging more females into this field? I think STEM education is the most important advancement in education in the last 20 years. And I think over the next 50 years, getting into tech is the best way to have a leg up in society, to grow your career, to grow your status, and to be involved um, in the future of startups and the whole economic ecosystem. Now, looking at the gender gap, it, it is true that typically there's only one female for every four to five males in the tech industry. So there is a lot of gap there. There's been discussions to change that, both from a public relations standpoint, but also from an actual implementation standpoint. One of the organizations I volunteer with to help bridge that gap and change that is called Mothers Coders. So Mother Coders actually got started in San Francisco. They're in New York City now. And they're an organization that, by the sounds of it, if, if you're a mom and uh, used to work in business and you, know, you, you had a kid, often your career, unfortunately, gets derailed because of the stigma around having kids and how to stay relevant. And so 
you know, Google's been involved. They're one of the big backers of Mother Coders. They um, help them uh, grow these initiatives. And, you know, what I've been a small part in doing is working with Tina, the founder, to help these mothers learn how to work with React and full stack web services, how to work with database, how to work with Google Cloud and AWS to to be tech relevant. So I think the conversation needs to happen everywhere um, in tech, but it can't just be a conversation. It needs to actually be real policy being set. The state of California just a few months ago said by 2025, all public companies in the state of California are required to have at least 20% of their leadership team women. I think that's a step in the right direction. You know, I think for a long time, we haven't supported uh, women in their growth. And, you know, in my experience, having worked with founders, having worked with fellow colleagues at Galvanize and advising startups, uh, I think females are some of the most um, perseverance uh, leaders out there. And, you know, to be part of that conversation, it's being sure that we're encouraging women in tech. Yeah, I, th- I think that policy piece is, is really important because we're not naturally inclined to change something, particularly if we feel like that what we're doing is working okay after all. Sometimes it, it takes a push or it takes a requirement or you know even just to set a goal to realize that what you're doing might be working pretty well, but you know, guess what? This can make things a lot better. Yeah, I, th- I think we are inherently good as humans. I think um, all of us have the best intention. And I think um, if we're thinking from a philosophical argument, you know, we all want to be known. You know, we all want to be realized. We want to be heard and seen. And uh, the challenge is in education, often the scale of education is that you become more a number and not just a name. And it's how to maintain that relationship so that you have the one-on-one with the professor the one-on-one at your organization, and you're able to, to grow. I think in such a fast-changing society where now we're all addicted to our smartphones and these streaming devices and, and all this software that takes our attention away from the people around us, it's important to remember we're human and to get back into the day-by-day. I, every week, do my best to disconnect, turn my phone on silent. I think there's a lot of strategies you can take but it is making a conscious effort to, to be present. I think that's important. And in the classroom as an educator, so I work a lot with adult students. These could be students who have an associate's degree, have a bachelor's degree, or changing careers trying to get into technology. And it takes effort as an educator not only to teach and inform your students of the technology skills, but also you know, let's take away our distractions, you know, silence your phones during the class, put away your email, and to set up an environment that fosters learning and also gives permission to the students to be willing to fail and to be willing to know that it's okay that you step away from your day by day and that I'm creating a safe learning environment for you. And that should be for all genders and uh, all humans. Yeah, that, that is, um, it's so encouraging to to hear you say that. So that's one of the the very early conversations I have with my own student. You know, I tell them, you know, in schools were really successful at conditioning you to believe that the secret to success in school is get to the right answer as quickly as possible and avoid wrong answers at all costs. It's so frustrating. You know, with music technology, ultimately 
really what I'm trying to teach the kids is how to be creative, how to come up with the idea using your imagination and then move that abstract concept in your head into something real. But the only way to do that is through mistake, through trial and error, through exploring. And right away, they want to know, how do I do this the right way? Well, there isn't a right way. Your, your goal is to explore, press buttons, make sounds. It's not, you're not necessarily looking for a right answer. You're looking for ideas. Yeah, you know, whether we're talking about podcasts in the audio tech space, or we're even looking at film creatives who've gone into music, we look at the likes in New York of Casey Meekbot, and he's done a lot of creative, interesting things over the years, and many of them have been failures, but he keeps trying new startups and new music designs. He'll record video of being him on a skateboard. He'll have a drone flying around with him. He'll have a GoPro filming him flying. And, you know, some of them are interesting and some take off. I think it's important to uh, have role models and people that inspire you. And in the creative process, that means seeing some of the creative things happening in Silicon Valley, in New York, in Savannah, Georgia, at SCAD, you know, at all these places. And, you know, when I was early on in also creative endeavors, I followed um, Devin Graham and, and his work with Lindsey Sterling. And I thought that was super interesting with music, how they were exploring the boundaries of Lindsey playing violin in, you know, Greenland and playing in the desert and, and doing very creative explorations that had never been done before. They were just trying something new. And, you know, they didn't care if they got millions of YouTube listeners or not. In the beginning, they had a very small following but they kept following that passion. And the biggest key for them was not just, okay, here's my passion, but how do I get better every step of the way? Am I constantly thinking of refining my process? And that could be inspired by other leaders, or that could simply be, how could I better automate my workflow? How could I improve my craft? So I completely agree with your sentiment, Heath, that if someone's looking to learn, you know, Adobe Audition or Pro Tools or one of these softwares when they're using music tech. I mean, you could spend years and years just mastering the software, or you could spend five hours and you got, you know, 80% of it, and then you keep refining yourself over time. So one of the things I often tell my students, and I'm not sure if I'm right or not, so today's my chance to ask an, an expert, you know, when talking about this idea of, you know, getting it right or wrong, in the real world, in uh, industry and technology, they're all the time putting stuff out that they know isn't right. You know, how many of you have ever had to update an app or update an operating system? When they push these things out, they know that there are going to be some issues, that it's not all right. But the way you find those problems is by using it and playing with it. And then they go back and fix it. And that's where you get your update. So I tell them that's an example of in the real world, people don't always turn stuff in when it's complete and finished. So am I accurate in that description uh, with my students? A hundred percent. So although I don't actually produce music records and music labels and all that, I do have friends in the industry who do that in Los Angeles. And I've had the, the honor to sit in on recording sessions, both in Miami and Los Angeles with some really interesting and accomplished people. And everything is a creative process of creating drafts. And there could be you know, dozens of versions of a draft. Um, there could be a recording session where two artists are just jamming and doing their work and they create 20 songs that day and 18 of them are just, you know, deleted um, or kept, you know, backed up. And then two of them came out good. So the creative process, it's the same thing when you code and you work on tech, you know, you come up with 20 designs for an app 
maybe 19 of them are not great, but you get the one inspiration moment. I think what's so important is having conversations and dialogue around what's interesting to you. And one of the things that several of my colleagues in New York and I do is we say, come up with one idea a day, right? Whether you journal it or you talk about it over lunch or coffee with your friends, come up with that idea and talk about it and brainstorm. And there's no wrong. You know, I had this idea the other day. I said, what if we could launch, you know, Amazon Locker for bodegas and CVS stores? And we had this huge, you know, business idea. This is amazing. Let's talk about it. It's brilliant. We'll have an app, you know, people will use it. And we started saying, well, you know, what would the strategy be? And we thought it was interesting and it's an idea we're playing with, but it's one we decide not to go with. So we have a lot of ideas and I think that's super important, whether it's creative speaking or tech speaking, to not be afraid of failure. And I think that's the big challenge. I recall when I was a high school student, so many of your classes, um, not the music tech class, but a lot of your primary non art and non-liberal art classes are study for the test, study for the exam, study for the SAT and ACT. So you're always about, I got to get it right. I have to write this the right way. But in music and tech and design, there is no right way. When Steve Jobs invented the iPhone and, and all these Apple products, no one knew they wanted it. But you know, he said, I, I think this is what people want. Let's try it. And you know, it ended up being a success because music was easily accessible on the original iPod, which was not possible on the Razor and the Blackberry and these other devices. So, you know, my biggest encouragement for high school students is, you know, be creative. And uh, if you talk to anyone in the tech space, even corporate America now, people are so open to hearing ideas because they know, you know, you're the new generation and as Generation Z and Generation Alpha, your idea could be the next lively, the next musically, the next Snapchat. And so it's so important to know that you have a voice and we want you to be a part of the process. Great. So now I want to uh, shift the conversation just a little bit. This podcast is focused on music technology and music technology teachers in general. Though our audience is typically familiar with technology as it pertains to music, they're likely not very familiar with AI and machine learning. So how would you describe this artificial intelligence systems and machine learning systems to someone who maybe isn't familiar with them? If it's your first time looking at AI, what I say is if there's anything you can automate, AI can be part of what you do. And the two biggest areas that AI are becoming useful for in 2019 is computer vision. So that's what you see in, in video and photos and what you listen in audio. Um, and then secondly, in text, how you can take text and determine uh, values from that. Anything that you can automate, that comes down to code. So it's always thinking, for example, I like to play piano. And often I would hire a piano teacher and take piano lessons. And the piano teacher would listen to my pitch and my, my tone and you know, my timing and my position and all of this and, and give me feedback. But you know, for most people, a piano teacher is expensive, right? Depending where you are in the country, it could be 25 an hour up to 100 an hour or more. And so one of the apps that I thought was super interesting that came out a couple of years ago was called Simply Piano. And what Simply Piano did is they made an app that you could put on your iPhone, your iPad, or any device. You press play, and it visually shows you what keys on the piano to press. And when you, pre when you press them, 
the app listens to what you're typing. And uh, if you get it right, there's you know green light up. If you're slightly wrong, it's yellow or red. Um, but it's smart in that it backtracks the keys. You keep getting the practice over and over, and there's no human supervision there. This is automated through the app design and the AI that's listening to your audio, making sure it's timing with the key, and progressively letting you unlock levels and adapting your learning style. I thought Simply Piano was amazing, and I know it won a lot of awards when it came out a couple of years ago, um, but I use it as a classic example to say, if you think about how can you improve the experience, and the experience ultimately is about accessibility. That's why I think AI is going to change the world for the better. You think about most people who want to learn piano, uh, most people can't afford $25 to $100 an hour uh, once a week a private teacher. But if you had an app, Simply Piano, that charged $10 a month for unlimited access, and then you bought a $100 Casio piano um, digitally from Amazon, well, now it's accessible. And now you can learn enough to be involved in the music department at your school. And before, when you would not be able to become a band player, now you could become a band player. So I say when, when you start thinking about AI, realize it's all around you already, but it's in its early stages. And typically those use cases are audio, video, and text. Yeah, I think for many people, when we hear this term artificial intelligence, it like conjures up this really scary imagery we have of, of like Cyberdyne in the Terminator movies or the, the androids in, in Blade Runner. I think we can choose to ignore AI, but it's all around us whether we want it to be or not. And a lot of people see that as a negative thing, but what can you say to our listeners that AI is not ushering in this dystopian minority report of the future of machines taking over the world? I know when we listen to the news every day that you look at stories in China with their social credit monitoring system, and, and then we see GDPR in Europe and, and the Privacy Acts in California and New York about cameras being on the bus lanes and cameras um, ticketing you and, and uh, tracking your every modem and, and starting to think, oh my gosh, Big Brother's watching us. So are we moving towards this dystopian minority report future? I think in one regard we might be, but um, I think it's not um, ushering in that error. I think instead it's accessibility and a classic case, for example, as China's been rolling out their social credit monitoring system in big cities like Beijing and Shanghai, this is a system that they have millions of cameras and the cameras track your every move. So it sounds scary, but what they've only done is they've only implemented this system in two use cases. The first use case is if you're jaywalking across the street, right? If, you, if you're jaywalking across the street, you make it dangerous for um, cyclists, you make it dangerous for cars, so it causes more accidents. So if you minimize jaywalking, people are more safe, traffic runs more smoothly. And the second case is if you're stealing and shoplifting, right? You should be penalized for, for stealing something. And what happens is if you do either of these two cases, they automatically deducts the ticket fee from your bank account. So it doesn't even go to court. It's like, here, a $25 charge, like, look, it's on the camera, you jaywalked. Like, if you want to dispute it, you could dispute it. But we have you here from five different angles, your alibi and walking across the streets. Now, 
you might think, you know, wow, this is super interesting. And how many people are jaywalking? So if you take 100 million people in China and you say, wow, I wonder how many of them really jaywalk, it's less than 0.001%. It's less than 10,000 of those people actually doing this. And so in the greater good, it's preventing bad actors. That's what I think AI is doing. And so when we think of Minority Report, uh, for those who saw that movie, you know, with Tom Cruise, you know, is, uh, oh my goodness, you know, we're going to create a society that's predicting incidents before they occur. But in reality, it's creating a society that's safer for everyone. And um, I think the next 30 years, at least, is ushering in what we call in the tech space, the fourth industrial revolution. So the fourth industrial revolution is new. The second industrial revolution, that was this steam engine and, and all this tech about processes to move. The third industrial revolution in the last you know, 30 years was information and access to data. The fourth industrial revolution is implementing automated systems all across the world. And that starts by having sensors everywhere. I think the more data you have access to through sensors, it's going to create accessibility. Now we look today at, for example, uh, one company called SpaceX, one of the uh, companies that Elon Musk is running with you know, autonomous rockets to send missions up to the space station and uh, eventually perhaps even to Mars. But the biggest thing that SpaceX is looking at is accessibility. They're looking at creating payloads where many what they were called CubeSats, these mini satellites will be deployed all over our stratosphere. So imagine 25,000 of these over the next few years. That's going to create internet access everywhere across the world. Um, so I think AI is going to create more accessibility. It's going to bring a lot more people online. You know, one thing that in the U.S. we don't see often, in the U.S., there's internet access everywhere, right? And you could typically get it for, you know, $20 to $150 a month, depending on uh, what type you get, or you can go to a public library or a school and get internet. When you go to countries like Venezuela right now, where there's no power, right? The whole country's in collapse often. You go to Nicaragua, where you have to pay $150 a month in American currency just to get three megabytes of internet. Or, you know, over 2 billion people in the world today live on less than $1 a day. How can they afford internet access? And how can you install fiber there, let alone having 4G networks that can support the bandwidth of so many people, there's a lot of problems that can be solved with AI. And when you start to have these conversations about what's a problem in my life, and, and I wonder how can AI help that, I think it's going to create a more accessible future. You know, I teach music technology classes to, you know, 12 to 14 year olds. The students certainly create music and they learn how to use the technology tools to do that. But, uh, you know, I often tell people who ask about my class that the most important thing I'm teaching and perhaps the most difficult is creativity. You, teaching and learning how to use a tool, which is what technology is at its root, is a tool is, is relatively easy compared to teaching someone how to think creatively. And you kind of, you know, mentioned that about what kind of problem do, do you want to solve that, that, you know, that idea of asking a question about, you know, how can we do something better? How do we do something more efficiently is ultimately a creative process. So, you know, what, what do you see as that role of human creativity in the development and future of this technological world? 
I love that question because I love the direction that the creative process is taking an AI. And I want to share two uh, great use cases. One is first around design, and that's around design thinking and images. And I think images is important because even when you're involved in the music space, you're going to have cover art for your albums and on YouTube and in your sites. So there's this really great startup in New York City called Runway ML. And what Runway ML does is it basically, if you're a creator and you don't know any code, they basically created an app like called like Premiere Pro, right? So for video, and all you do is you open the app, you take your images, you put it in the app, and they let you customize it. So you can add people to the images, you can um, change the design. If during summer the leaves look green, you can instantly make it winter, like in Game of Thrones, just with a couple clicks of the button using a lot of powerful AI algorithms. And it's basically bringing the power of artificial intelligence to the masses. So I really love what they're doing and their, their beta is actually available now. So even if you're a student in middle school and high school, I say you can download the beta and, and try this out. Take the images of you and your friends, your selfies, and see how you can customize that. The second use case that I think is even more powerful is for musicians. TensorFlow uh, is the name of this big AI programming language that has been going viral and a lot of researchers are using TensorFlow over the last few years. TensorFlow is this um, open accessibility for doing AI in many programming languages. So if you are um, a budding developer, whether that's in Python or C Sharp or R or Java or JavaScript, or even uh, they support now a couple dozen languages, but any of the languages you learn, TensorFlow came out with version 2.0. And 2.0 just came out in uh, May 2019. So it's very new. And one of the big things that they came out with in TensorFlow 2.0 is a sub package. This package is called Magenta. M-A-G-E-N-T-A, -E Magenta. Magenta is a sub-package to make music and art using machine learning. What this means is if you like someone like Bach or Taylor Swift, you can take their music and you can run it into the algorithm and then it will play out the acoustic equivalent of what they do. And yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible. And um, it's working better right now on classical music and music that doesn't have voice, right? So it's, it's a little bit easier to reproduce that, um, but it's super cool and it's just been out the past couple months. There's a lot of other now um, knockoffs off that, trying to also do it with text. Text and audio together is really challenging. That problem has not been solved, but text by itself or audio by itself is a lot of progress. And why is this interesting? Perhaps maybe you are not a piano player, but you want to create a music video and you, know, you have this issue with licensing you know, famous classic works and music. What if you could take these classic works of Bach, throw it into the algorithm and create some whole new version. Now you have your own license and DRM free music that you could have in your music video or your student production for TV at the school level. So I think that's really interesting. The second part is creating text. So there's these other um, interesting models that if you take, for example, um, this was just a few months ago, you take Kanye West, you take all of his songs, right? And you take from his songs just his lyrics and you run the lyrics into a text-based model, you're able to create brand new rap songs inspired by Kanye West and to see what they'd be like. And then you could just start singing them and see what they're like.
That one's super in beta. There's really no apps that run that yet, but you can, you know, Google Kanye West rap and, and, and there's some ways that people are doing this AI. So I think those are two very interesting use cases that are beta, they're cutting edge. And if you're someone who wants to play with it, it's a great time to explore. Yeah, you know, my class, we talk about uh, a little bit about the history and development of, you know, music technology. And I think it's really interesting, you know, because this seismic shift happened uh, in how consumers access music in the early 2000s. Because really, from the beginning of recorded music and, and people having access to music, the model was that consumers would purchase a, rec a recording. So you'd go buy a record. So now that that record, you know, belongs to you. Or, you know, later it would be eight tracks and cassettes and eventually, you know, CDs. And then, you know, Napster comes along in the late 1990s when, uh, you know, we went from, you know, the internet coming out of our phone lines to, you know, more high-speed models. And now we could transfer these files much quicker. And now, you know, Napster was like, let's all share our music with each other. And the music industry freaked out but by that time consumers were like wait a second no we want music this way you know this is this is so so much better so you know with the ipod and then itunes comes out and so we're still purchasing our own recordings they're digital recordings so instead of a cd or a record we're still buying our copy but then a few a few years later here comes pandora and now particularly spotify and you know, you mentioned algorithms and, you know, I kind of worked up to this because algorithms play such a huge part in how those platforms work as far as Pandora and Spotify goes, where today consumers aren't necessarily purchasing our own copies of music, but we're purchasing access to music. So you get a membership to Spotify or, or whatever, and now you have access to all this music instead of having to go buy, you know, these, these individual copies which that's huge i think shift in 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 you know how an industry operates but you know as far as you know this algorithms and and how this kind of ai uh and you mentioned a couple of these examples with these new apps and these new businesses that are that are coming out can you tell me a little bit just about you know how that how does this algorithms and, and machine learning kind of play into these new developments like how does it do that i think it's super interesting so i totally miss the the classic days of records and eight tracks as well you know records are actually back alive you know in the millennial generation uh, there's all these new devices you could even go to ikea and, and these locations and buy now these records that support bluetooth and the record and, and playing on different um, displays. And, and there's been a lot of projects on Kickstarter to reinvigorate records. In fact, I went last year in Nashville to the Country Music Hall of Fame. And when I was there, I got to listen to 8-tracks and you know hear Johnny Cash and, and all the different uh, methods and how the audio quality was. And I think one of the biggest challenges about moving to digital is losing the quality of sound. And, you know, if you're on Pandora or Spotify or, or iTunes, which is now Apple Music, you don't often have a mastered level quality. And so actually one of my favorite apps for listening to music is Tidal. So Tidal is really interesting. It's more in the R&B and, and other industries, but they have master level audio, which is a little bit higher quality. Anyway, there's many apps there doing that. And even in the podcast space, we're seeing master level audio. But the question is, how do you get the best audio quality? And 
when you're using tools like Pro Tools and Adobe Audition and, and other audio software, one of the classic things your students may know is that there's compression software, right? And this compression software is to manage the size and to help it with its quality, um, but it's evolving. And how it's evolving, if we think about it from a image perspective, because it's an easier visualization, if you have an image that's you know 10 megabytes and it's an image that you took on your iPhone, of um, you and your friends skateboarding after class and you love it, but it takes a long time to upload. One of the first things you would do is in the Photoshop or Lightroom, you would compress it and you would take it from 10 megabytes and bring it down to one megabyte or less, whether it's a JPEG, PNG, or GIF. Well, that process actually takes the pixels in the image and turns them from the colors into numbers and then basically makes a matrix where there's less of those pixels. It finds associations of distance and finds similarity and then reduces the quantity. So to the human eye, you still see something that looks like the 10 megabyte um, image, but it's in a compressed form, so it loads faster. The same thing is what's happening in audio today. What we're doing is listening to the sound and finding similar sound frequencies. And sound actually is all just numbers, right? Zeros and ones. And when the sound is converted, similar sound patterns can be erased from the media and used with earlier references. So it doesn't have to be 200 megabytes. It could be 20 megabytes and the audio is referencing the other places in the file. And that's all done through AI. That, and, and really that, what I mean by that is that's algorithms that are recognizing these similarities so that you're able to have smaller files and they're able to process faster. Yeah, so why do we really want to compress audio and make it so much smaller? The truth is that 5G, this new blazing fast internet over the air that speeds up to a gigabyte, is so much farther away than we think. Uh, some estimates from analysts are saying it could be till 2025 till 5G is fully rolled out and 6G is in the works right now as well. So really it's all again thinking about accessibility and accessibility means does everyone have an unlimited data plan and is the music you're making just for people in the United States or is it for a global audience? And if the global audience, as I was sharing earlier in the episode, is that individual in Nicaragua who is on three megabytes internet and cannot have both a Skype call and a YouTube stream at the same time, well, the more compressed your file is, the better accessible you are for your global audience. And I think it's important when you're building new songs and new applications and new demos that you are thinking about accessibility. The conversation has been awesome and you've already taken up quite a bit of time, but I like to, in my podcast, uh, by reading some quotes to my guests and just asking them to respond. Okay, so here we go. The first quote is, by far the greatest danger of artificial intelligence is that people conclude too early that they understand it. So what do you think about that? I completely agree with that. So I know he's done a lot in the research space and uh, there's a lot of startups coming out now about explainable AI and interpretable AI. And I think that is probably the biggest danger, right? Say you come out with an application that says you should approve a loan or deny a loan for a house and there's no human there to support on that. Then we just think, oh, the person got rejected because, you know, well, they just didn't qualify. 
but could there be something more behind it? And so I think human supervision is essential for the growth in AI over the next couple of decades. The next quote comes from Jenny Rometty, and she says, some people call this artificial intelligence, but the reality is this technology will enhance us. So instead of artificial intelligence, I think we'll call it augment our intelligence. Sure. So Ginny is the current CEO of IBM. She's a big thought leader in the space. She's been making IBM have its turnaround back into the cloud, particularly to her quote. I would agree with that quote. We can see now Deloitte just came out with their human capital management report in April 2019. And they said, we're moving to a world of super jobs. And what that means is no longer will you have a job where you're an analyst at Goldman Sachs, or you're you know someone who just listens to music and edits with Pro Tools, right? But you're going to have these AI tools, which are going to help automate your process. And you're going to do the more cognitively challenging tasks, such as making sure everything still makes sense. You know, there's startups in New York right now. One of them, one of my friends used to work at called Frame.io. And what that startup does is it takes the collaboration of editing video into account. So now basically, instead of you know, oh, I edit a video segment and then I need to send that to a friend and then they edit offline. It creates Google Docs, but editing um, together very collaboratively. Finally, uh, a name that a lot of people have probably heard, Elon Musk, who said, the pace of progress in artificial intelligence, and I'm not referring to now AI, is incredibly fast. Unless you have direct exposure to groups like DeepMind, you have no idea how fast. It is growing at a pace close to exponential. The risk of something seriously dangerous happening is in the five-year time frame, 10 years at most. Elon Musk, he's a very interesting guy. And um, in general, I'll say he's very moonshot, very much thinking about the long term. So I appreciate his thought process there. Now, about the disruption of AI, um, yes, there's a lot of changes happening. And I think as society, what we always do is we overestimate the long-term effects. So we think, oh, by 2050, we're all gonna have these AI robots taking care of our parents and our houses. Like that may come to pass or not, but we underestimate the short-term. So we're not really thinking like, yeah, in five years, we may have self-driving cars everywhere. Like think of how many jobs that can disrupt. So there, there is a lot of risk in five years. I think one of the biggest ones for music students and uh, those in production is deep fakes. Deep fake technology is you know, creating these now videos where you take someone like Donald Trump and you can just take one image of him or a video and you can make him say something. Well, who knows if it's real or not, right? And, and so that's, uh, I think, a big risk. And as we're moving to the 2020 election, start thinking about fake news and fake media and what's real or not. And um, I think we're going to see for the first time in this election, even more fake news and fake media than the 2016 election. So I know back then we talked about interference from governments and all these interesting things. But I think in 2020, we're going to have fake videos of, um, on both sides of the aisle um, of candidates not really saying things and saying they didn't say it. And it should be super interesting to see what chaos or organized chaos that creates coming up. Yeah, I, I, I think that's uh, such a it's an interesting point. And, and you know, from that standpoint, it, you know, it is scary because you know you, we have devices like you know uh, you know VR devices, so uh, you can be 
you know, sitting on your couch or standing in a room in your home while it seems like you're exploring the Grand Canyon. You know, you have this device strapped to your face, so you understand that you're seeing something that seems like it's there, it's not. But when you're just surfing on your computer and going through your social media or, or, or what whatnot, they can create things that look very real. This looks like all these other legit sources. So, you know, that, that piece, particularly with students of, you know, teaching what digital citizenship means and, and, and how you go back and, you know, confirm sources and find multiple sources, that's really important because you more and more we never know exactly where it's coming from. Yeah, and I think fake news spotters uh, or these um, these uh, systems to help detect and to authenticate fakes and genuine media will become a big trend that we're going to start to see in the next few years. Um, I'll share one final research that just came out in June uh, from Adobe and UC Berkeley. And they created a tool that can detect facial manipulations in Adobe Photoshop. So, you know, often in Europe today, um, all ads require you to say, this ad has been Photoshopped, especially around models and eating and, you know, uh, food disorders. But in the U.S., we don't have that. But with this new technology, we may be able to have researchers take all the ads we're seeing on TV in the U.S. and say, Photoshop, Photoshop, not Photoshop. So super interesting where detection and authentication is moving. And I think that's um, maybe a light at the end of the tunnel, you know, for students and, and for parents, you know, and for everyone, right, that we're going to have the opportunity to think about accessibility and to have the rights and protections put in place. In California, they just a few months ago passed CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, which basically says, you know, you have the right to be forgotten. Your data is yours, just like in Europe with what they had, the GDPR. In New York, we have one of our representatives pushing forward right now, New York Privacy Act, which is even stricter. Um, it's similar to say that you want the right, your building cannot even use its camera to detect you with facial recognition without your permission. You actually have to sign this. You have the right to refuse. You know, I think we're moving into a society that's splintering very quick. It's kind of this society where China says, we're going to monitor you everywhere. And the United States and Europe is saying, no, please don't monitor me at all. And you know, even in the school system, there was a school in Albany, uh, New York, that recently said, we're going to install facial recognition in the school. And monitor the kids and and they went with the thoughts that we want to keep you safe right because you know all the school shootings and, and all these these um travesties but you know the parents said no i don't want my students my my kids monitored and and it puts us at a dichotomy right um as one of um the committee members when we put on the march of our lives uh movement in washington dc uh, my high school was stoneman douglas so i, I sat there and i, I helped uh, raised this um, very amazing movement that we had in D.C. After, after shooting, you know, I'm torn. I'm often torn. Should we put facial recognition in schools? Should we not put it in schools? And, and what is about safety and accessibility versus Big Brother? But generally, I come out optimistic. I, I think we're moving towards um, a future that will be more accessible as long as we have a lot of those regulation in, in place. Well, David, I, I really can't thank you enough for the time you've put aside to have this conversation today. Uh, as we come to the end, I do want to give you an opportunity. Just if you have any final thoughts, you know, particularly uh, to the teachers out there that are, that are listening to you know, encourage them you know, not to be afraid of this technological future or just words of wisdom you'd like to leave us with. If you're a teacher listening today, whether it's middle school, high school, college, boot camps, anywhere in the space, 
I should say you should start embracing technology. You've been using technology in your classrooms for going on the past 20 years, you know, from smart whiteboards to auto grading systems to curriculum uh, auto sharing syllabus. So there's a lot of new processes there. Continue to embrace technology. Continue to bring it into the classroom. It will help your students and it will help you. And I think it will give you the opportunity to be more aware on how technology is creating accessibility rather than closing off our schools. I think the more that you can be involved in the process, the more say you have. And as an educator, um, I have a soft heart for anyone in the teaching space. So you can always reach out. You can learn more in Heath's podcast. You can always listen more in the Humane podcast where we talk about these AI topics. Uh, every week and we explain it for you know whether you're a fifth grader or whether you're going on 50 we're here to make sure that uh, you better understand ai and how it can help your life david thank you so much for the time today the the conversation has been fascinating and i appreciate you so much sharing your expertise with me and our audience thanks so much heath been a pleasure and thank you for listening to this episode of new tech teacher talk it would be great if you could take a moment to leave us a review and help us spread the word by sharing the link to the podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you would like to learn more about artificial intelligence and machine learning's influence in the lives of consumers and industry, I would encourage you to check out David's Humane Podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also visit his website at www.humanepodcast.com. If you're interested in learning some high-level skills in web development, data science, or developing a tech company, you will definitely want to check out the galvanize.com website. In addition to this podcast, please check out my website, www.mutechteachernet.com, my blog at www.mutechteachernetblog.com, and check out the videos on our YouTube channel by searching Mutech TeacherNet on youtube.com. Finally, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Mutech TeacherNet or on Twitter at Mutech TeachNet. I've been your host, Heath Jones, with the Music Technology Teacher Network. Advocate, support, inspire, create.